0: We're reading from the book of Micah, chapter four, verses nine to the end and the whole of chapter five. This is the word of the Lord. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out for out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted, let polluted, let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace when the Assyrians invades our land, when the when he tramples on our citadels, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant, remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like a dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images And your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands i will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities and i will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed this is the word of the lord we thank you lord that you have revealed these things to us not that we can find out about them, but the only way to know them is that you have in your mercy, and your grace, revealed them to us and we're grateful for that. Uh, As you speak to us today, Lord, open our eyes, open our uh, ears to receive your word that we treasure it in our hearts, that we pant for it like the deer pants for water. It's in Jesus name that we ask you these things. Amen.
1: Thank you, Ray. Uh, today is message four of six in the book of Micah, and I just want to start with a little bit of review today, kind of thinking about what Micah is about as we dive in again to the huge promise of the king here that we've just heard about. So the book of Micah, like my high schoolers or middle schoolers get annoyed when I repeat what I'm saying sometimes in a series, but to you guys, I want to keep doing it. So, what is the book of Micah about? How God responds to unjust Israelite leaders. And 3 1 is kind of a key verse there. Also, want to remind you uh, once again quickly of some of the things which maybe you can be asking as you read through Micah on your own. Some of you have already said you're doing that. Great. Praise God. I am too as I think through the book. How does Micah exalt God and point specifically to the Messiah? Boy. We see that today, don't we, in our text. What kind of sin, specifically injustice, is God calling out through the prophet Micah? How does leadership, and your leadership in particular, uh, affect people? And we see a great leader here today in the text, don't we? And finally, how is God going to solve Micah's problem, our problem, the Israelite problem of sin and injustice? We saw a little bit of that today as well in chapter 5. I also want to kind of remind you and bring to attention where we're at in the overall flow of the book of Micah. So here we are in chapters three through five, the middle section, and kind of, we've talked about how the first two chapters are consequences with judgments and responses to judgments. Here we are with more proof, specifically, who is the problem? Leaders, religious leaders of Israel preaching a false gospel, taking advantage of people right? We've seen that. And we said then also last week, there's a promise. In the middle of dark times, there's a promise of God's redemption, if you will. And today, the focus of that promise, really we're picking up on that, is the coming King. And then we'll tackle chapters 6 and 7 next time. But I'm blanking that on purpose, so you can focus here for a second. I want to ask a question as I start today's message in Micah. How do we judge the value of something? So some of you may even have that as a job. But how do you judge, how do I judge the value of anything? And I wanna start a little silly maybe, but with cards, collectible cards. Now this is a big deal in my house right now because Hezekiah is big into Pokemon. And maybe some of y'all out there that are younger were at some point, they're a big deal for kids his age. And he's always asking Alexa, Alexa, how much is my Pokemon VMAX blah, blah, blah card worth? And it's always wrong because it doesn't actually know, like, there's different sets and everything. And he's like, oh, I've got a $3,000 card. I'm like, no, you don't. Like, no. And if it is, and then sometimes like, oh, I better check. No, it's not. (laughs) He ordered this set from China that's these fake cards, and he thought they they, they aren't valuable. I also collected baseball cards when I was younger, and my parents recently brought them to us, and You know, baseball cards are fascinating, and what makes them worth something is really the difference of them and how rare they are and if there are errors, actually. So there's a Frank Thomas card. He was a guy who played baseball for the White Sox a long time ago. His rookie card has no name on it in one of the brands, and it's worth $10,500 just because his name isn't on there. There's another one, actually, an even greater one. Because it's so rare and in such good condition, it's a Mickey Mantle rookie card from 1952, And that one was sold at an auction last year for $12.8 million. Most of that printing of that card was dumped in the ocean because they thought it was going to be valuable. Actually, I looked it up. Crazy, right? Crazy. Well, why is it so valuable? What gives it its value? And in your life, too, what gives things value? One of the big ways that we assign value to items and things in life is how different they are. Just how different They are. See, everything else is common compared to this card, and I think we're going to see in our text today, we've already seen as you read it, how common everything else is compared to the Lord Jesus. This promised king is different. He has different strategies. He's got a different personhood, and he's got a different kind of people. We're going to look at that, and I I just want to challenge you today as we go through this, as I did myself this week, Jesus is supremely valuable because of his differences. And that's really what Micah 4.9 through the end of 5 is about, the different kind of king that he is. Compared to all these other Israelite leaders, right, even Micah himself, Jesus is set apart. He's different. And so the first thing that I kind of put up there a little early is he's got different strategies This Jesus, this king, this coming king, we know is Jesus, has different strategies for how he's going to rule. If you look here, I just want to dive into the text at verse 9 of chapter 4 and work a little bit through this here. Verse 9 is a reference to the Lord as their king. So here God is kind of being sarcastic, I think, through the prophet Micah. He's saying, isn't there a king? Like, why are you complaining? Why are you crying? Here's what I think is going on. They had forgotten that it wasn't Hezekiah, if that's who's king here, which I think it probably is, that was their king. Who's their king? The Lord. The Lord himself. And so he's like, you're complaining because of injustice, but you've forgotten that I'm king. And Hezekiah has failed. The text doesn't point him out specifically as a failure, but if you go and look up his history, we don't have time to do that. 2 Kings 18 and following, it didn't It wasn't well with him. He did good things, but in the end, it didn't end well with him, let alone Jotham and Ahaz. So so we have this failure of the kings. And you know what God says here? I think that he will deliver them despite the failure of their leaders. He's going to deliver them. And that's kind of the first point of his different strategy, that he delivers people despite, in and through, their failures, that's the kind of king with a different kind of strategy for his people and for his rule. And last week, uh, one of my sisters who I love a lot here pointed out something that I, I said he ignored their sin. I was wrong. He didn't ignore it. He waited. He waited until the perfect time when things were bad for his glory to shine. Right when actually, if you remember, Assyria had surrounded them right? There was pretty much no human hope of deliverance. God was going to have to come through in a different way than human kings could. You look at verse 10 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, you see that he delivers his people really through pain. That's different than a human king, right? That's different than our culture. We don't like pain. (laughs) He delivers his people through pain, through pain, in and through suffering even. And if you look at 10, 10 is very interesting. They go out of the city, out into the country, but then into exile. That's a different strategy, right? Than just, hey, we're going to deliver you. There's going to be no pain. He said, no, I'm going to persevere with you. I'm going to send you actually not only deliver you from Assyria, but I'm going to send you into exile and deliver you there. There's more pain coming, in other words, right? And here, and I hope you're thinking, processing through, ooh, who does this sound like? (laughs) Deliverance through pain. He also delivers his people by bringing his enemies right up near the most important place in his country and destroys them. He says he gathers the nations. Look at verse 11. It says that they're going to gather, but they don't know. His strategy is different there. He gathers them not so that they can destroy and pillage and plunder like the cities of Judah that were destroyed. He says, I gather them there for this purpose, to destroy them. In that painful trial, the same painful trial that's going on throughout the country, God delivers them. Sounds a lot like King Jesus, doesn't it? His own painful trial. The way in which He ministered to His people, which He delivered His people. And I think the difference this king and his different strategy, is that he works for us in and through failure and shines brightest when our failures are greatest. Isn't that amazing? Like, this is the king that Micah promises to these people. He doesn't cast them off, but he says, I'm going to use pain to deliver you. He doesn't destroy them completely. There's a remnant left. And he says to us too, whoever is an unjust failure, looking at ourselves, right? I'll deliver you despite that failure. That is a different kind of king than the world offers to us, isn't it? And, it fe- and, you know, the Bible says walking with Jesus feels a lot like death. I'm sure it felt a lot like death for these people. And there was actually a lot of physical death there. But despite that, God promises through the coming king to deliver these people. Now, my wife has had four kids. Praise God. I have been at the delivery process for all four of them. So she has chosen, she's brave, I could never do it, to have them without (laughs) painkillers. So one has been in a hospital, two in a birthing center, and one at home. And that one at home was actually quite scary for me. Um, She had gone in labor, through labor, for about 36 hours. We were walking on the street, just trying to get This was Moses. And if you know Moses, actually, he's trouble from the beginning. He's a wonderful, lovely kid, but he's trouble from the very beginning in labor, right? So we're walking 36 hours into it, and then the real hard labor starts. For ladies, you know what this is. And it was terrifying. It was back labor. She's already exhausted. She hasn't slept for almost two days. And as the baby is coming, there's a lot of blood. I won't go into all the detail, but it was scary for me. And you know what, though? A phrase that they had taught us her particularly, but I was reminding her as she was going through this difficult pain. Hey, this is pain with a purpose. This is pain that will accomplish something. And that got her through, you know, obviously the Lord, but just reminding and me too. I'm like, I'm not doing the pain, but it was unreal. That's why we went to a birthing center the last time. Cause I'm like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so she was willing, but, but okay. So in our text, you know, God actually used that example twice, doesn't he? twice in our text, of the pain of childbirth, bringing forth something by God delivering them in and through that. And so what are some of the purposes of the pain of failures in our life, these different strategies that God uses? How does he use that? Just like he promises this king who is our king right now. How does he use those? I have a few ones here. First, failures and the accompanying pain are mirrors for other people. So when we, Judah, Judah is like our mirror. We look at that and we're like, you know, oh, I'm just like that. Samaria and the northern kingdom were supposed to be Judah's mirrors. They were supposed to look at what was going on and repent, and they didn't. I think that serves as a warning for us. Judah and the book of Micah and their injustice is a mirror for you and I. We're supposed to look at that and say, hey, I need a hope and a better king, but I should repent, turn from that. Secondly, Failures and the accompanying pain reveal the depth of God's curse on our world. They testify to what He has done in hopes that we might seek Him. Third, failures and the accompanying pain provide a kind of test of our own faith. They say to us, how will you respond to your failure and sin? And maybe it's not even ours. We look at the culture now, as I've said before, and God is saying to us, "How, how will you respond to the injustice you see? where's your hope at? In yourself or in my king? Um, I love, this is just a theme throughout the Bible. We can't touch on all the ways in which it is, but failure and the accompanying pain show us the greatness of God's grace. They just magnify it. They just show us how wonderful he is. When we look at our current leaders, we say, I want a better king. Micah's people and he himself says, I want a better king. I want someone who will be just, who will reign in righteousness. And I just got to say that there's a cool proverb about this. 24, uh, so Proverbs twenty four sixteen says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. The wicked, what about them? They are destroyed in one disaster. And so, how how will God use your failures? He is intending, through His strategy, through the Lord Jesus Christ, to use your failures to magnify His grace, and mine, and the leaders in our culture. All the injustice, somehow, in an amazing way, God uses that for His glory in your life, too. And really, the only thing that, that disqualifies that, that stops that, is unbelief. Is unbelief. In other words, responding to those with not believing God's promise, that he's using that. And I think about Judas and Peter here. Two men who did basically the exact same thing. Some people even think Peter was a little bit worse in the end because three times he denied Jesus Christ and ran away. But they're very similar, right? And one of them was forgiven and one of them killed himself. It's the one who repented of sin and who turned. And God used that if you know the story, right, he used that to make him into a man who was sure of where he was going and who his king was, didn't he? They magnify the grace of God. Fifth, I think failures and the accompanying pain drive us to humility and dependence on God. Romans eleven twenty two says, behold the goodness and severity of the Lord. In and, and in through the discipline and difficulties of life, we see the goodness of God. Behold that. That's what he wants us to do. And and he says, be humble because of that. And I just like how God is in the book of Micah and throughout the scripture, you know, C.S. Lewis' famous quote, right? He's not a safe lion, but he's a good one. And he drives us to humility in the process of these pains, like he did Micah, like he did the Israelites, both in the north and the south. And finally, and I kind of mentioned this before, alluded to it, but failures in the accompanying pain make us want more. They make us want better, uh, and they really drive us to a hope for perfection in our leaders. We look at our current state of our nation. Maybe you even look at yourself, and I'm like, I want more. I want more, and I think that's what Micah is trying to do. With all the injustice, he's pointing us to say, I want more in a king. I want a perfect king, and that's where this passage drives us. And our pain, for you and I, is pain with a purpose. The discipline of the Lord, even the injustice around us, is is pain with a purpose. Great leaders fail a lot. We fail a lot in leadership. Hezekiah failed. Our world is one that avoids pain. I don't think we should avoid pain. We should look to the Lord in the pain. It's pain with a purpose in your life. The difficulties and things he puts you through are for a purpose. Just like these Israelites, he said, I'm going to send you into exile, but I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing you back. He has different strategies, doesn't he? This king, the Lord Jesus, has different strategies for his people. He's a different kind of king. Secondly, in this passage, I see that he's a different kind of person. I want to read this whole thing, verses 2 through 6, for you again, because it just is the centerpiece. If 3 1, Micah 3 1 is kind of the exegetical or the text main point, hey, injustice, 5 2 is the theological, homiletical, like for us and what God is doing, point of the book. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. So he's a different kind of person. just want to highlight some of that. A lowly human birth. I. Mentioned that last time that God identifies with the poor and the downtrodden, right? The oppressed, that's Jesus. Born in a small place, a backwater village of the capital. The king of all time, born. And you know the story, right? In the gospels, right? Just, you know, his family wasn't even in their hometown. They had to move because of taxes, right? Just like in a manger, right? He's also a divine person this coming king is divine. His origin is not just Bethlehem. It's eternity. It's eternity. His desire is for his brother's return. And if you think, I think this is kind of a funny statement almost, like whereas the people in Israel at that time, they were taking advantage of their brothers. You know, you remember like they would come and they'd steal their cloak. They'd steal widows' houses. They'd take advantage. He wants what? His brother's return. He has a heart of mercy here. He desires that they come back. He doesn't want to take advantage of them. He wants to help them. And he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Hence this beautiful thing that my wife said, wherever that is, I want to live there. Those sheep represent this shepherd in that picture. That's why I have it there. He is a shepherd and he's great everywhere on the earth. Verse four, and he is peace. He doesn't just bring peace, though he does that. He is himself peace. And now I'm sure you're thinking, man, think about like Colossians 1. He made peace through the blood of his cross. This one is peace for us. He doesn't just work for peace. He doesn't fail sometimes. He can't fail because he is peace. And he delivers people, his people, from earthly and satanic forces. So if you look at verse 6 for a second here, verse 5, and then the beginning of 6, I believe, is where it talks about he is peace. But We look at verse 6. I think it's a both-and idea, so it's a little difficult to understand. I think that's why we're going to spend a second here. And it means a now and not yet. So what's going on? The 7 and 8, there is a symbol for completeness, I think. There'll be enough people to deliver, but you notice it's not actually these people who deliver Israel from the Assyrians. It says, he will deliver us. So what's going on contextually in Micah's day? I think what's going on is that after the Lord Jesus, if you remember, pre-incarnate Christ comes down and destroys the Assyrian army. Remember that? 2 Kings 18. He goes out and wipes them out in response to Hezekiah's prayer. What actually happens, though, is that that king of that army, Sennacherib, goes back to his capital, and he's murdered by his sons worshiping a demon in a temple. But actually, what we don't know, or what I haven't said yet, from Scripture specifically, is that there were a bunch of people around that time who actually rose up against him. What happens when you lose 180,000 people in your army? People try to test you. And so he's actually destroyed by several people, rebellions in his country and a Medio-Persian alliance with Babylon that come in and finally destroy them and wipe them out. Now, I think that that is the now part for Micah, but there's a yet coming time when someone like this Assyrian, reads Satan, and his forces will be destroyed when they come up against Jesus Christ. So we're thinking here about like Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, where it says all these people from the nations, powered by demonic forces, try to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, and they themselves are destroyed. Sound like Micah 4 and 5? I think it does. And I think that's one of the themes that Jesus protects his people from these opposing forces. He is a different kind of person. He's a different kind of person. And I just want to say that since the very beginning, we look at Genesis three fifteen, Second 2 Samuel 7, the covenant that God has made has always been looking for a promised king. This isn't just in Micah's day. These people have been looking and hoping for a just king, a solution for injustice. And I just think Man, this is a lens we want to read the scriptures through, right? We want to read Micah through this lens. We want to read the whole Bible through this lens. We want to read our lives through this lens as well. What is God doing? How is he a different kind of person with different kind of strategies? God came down to the world, took on flesh, took a name. Jesus is that name. This king that Micah is talking about is Jesus Christ. And he was our peace and he is our peace. Um, Do you see him there? No, I do. He goes to extreme measures to bring justice, and he gives it all. He's able to solve the problems. Remember that question, how is God going to solve these problems? Himself and his king, a different kind of person. Now, I'm going to play something for you here that I love. Um, it's a guy named S.M. Lockridge, and it's called My King, and he does something here better than I could ever do. <laughs> he has a great voice, and he goes through scripture and talks about I see someone smiling. Maybe you've seen it. I played it for the kids at, at youth camp one time, but I just love it so much that I want to get it up here for you. We're going to kill the lights. It's about three minutes, and it talks about who Jesus is in the scripture. Um, are we ready? I'm going to go ahead and hit it here.
2: The Bible says, He's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially much. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Where well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He, he delivers the captives. He defends the people. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligence. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My King is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable, he's indescribable, yeah. He's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible, you can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. You can't even him, and he's not going to resign. That's my...
1: This talks about, you know, basically he has no origin. The Pharisees, one of the, my favorite lines is, the Pharisees couldn't stop him. They couldn't stand him, but the grave couldn't hold him. You know, they tried to kill him, but they couldn't do it. And Herod and all the rulers were aligned against him, and they couldn't keep him dead. That's the kind of king we have. One who is unstoppable. He's a different kind of person. Death can't hold him. You know, and that's what Mike is pointing us to. You know, I, I love to tell the high schoolers, look, if you can't kill someone, what can you do to him? What can you do to him? There's no stopping him. He's a different kind of person, immortal. That's the kind of king that we have. That's the kind of person that Jesus Christ is. And I think the problem is, in any culture without Christ, or any person who depends on themselves and not Christ, you see only half the problem, and you come with a completely wrong solution, right? People are really good at finding injustice and all the associated problems out there with it. Except they leave out the depravity of man. It's like everyone else out there is bad, but I'm okay. I have the solutions. Let me give you an example. So, uh, a couple of days ago and last night, I googled, how do we solve the world's problems? I'm like, hey, <laughs> this will be interesting, right? <laughs> and it was. I read several articles um, just kind of laughing a little bit as I went through, and then sadness like Mike had in chapter one of the responses. Here are basic, the basic responses. The general consensus number one that working together can solve the world's problems. Education was kind of number two on that list. Changing traditional approaches, basically progress, they said, was a clear solution. And you, you Google that and you'll find these things essentially. But actually more disturbing, are Christian approaches to solving injustice issues like racism. And let me just read you one from Fuller, or, or give you a some synopsis of Fuller Seminary's Youth Institute Solutions from 2017 to Racism. They said, first, we have to name and identify the systemic roots. Number two, we have to lament and confess reality. Number three, we have to build bridges. And number four, advocacy are the solutions. just made me sad because in that, there's no mention of Christ. He's left out. In the whole article, it basically, he's left out. The only solution that God has for these great injustices is completely left out of that solution. I hope it's not like that for us. I just got to say that if our strategies and the person we're relying upon are not based in Jesus Christ and rooted in the scriptures, they're going to fail. In the end, we'll end up with total ruin. You will have replaced Christ with yourself or Satan, just like these people in Micah's day had. And so we have a different kind of king with different strategies, and he's just an altogether different person, one that can't be stopped. One who's righteous himself, who is peace himself. And the book of Micah points us to that and promises for them, for the hope they have, that that king is coming one day. Finally, in verses 7 through 15, this kind of king, this different king creates a different kind of people, a transformed people from the inside out, right? Every other solution that I read there was from the outside in, Right? And that's where Mike is going. He's like, this king does something special. He does something special, not just because of who he is, but because of who his people are and how he works in their hearts. If you look at verse 7, God makes these people to be a blessing around them. And they hope in God. And this passage with rain here is kind of interesting. Do is like a blessing from the Lord, right? Do is like a blessing from the Lord. And then in some translations, it says, which waits not on men, but I think it should say who. So, if you read that, it should say who. These people are those who don't what? Wait on men. What does that mean? It means depend on men. So, these are people who are transformed from the outside, not to depend on their own strategies, but on the king's strategies. They are those who are a blessing around. They don't hope in men, but in God, and they're unstoppable. So, notice this. It's not only the king well, I wish we could have watched that, but who's unstoppable, according to scripture, who's a different kind of person, but it's his people. And really, it's, I just find it interesting. The shepherd sends in his sheep, right? Okay, it's like, send in the sheep. But they're not just sheep. They're unstoppable. They're, they're sheep that are like lions that don't ever get stopped. That sound like us a little bit in the New Testament, right? Satan won't prevail against the church, His attacks won't succeed, just like this promise in Micah. Now, whether whether or not you think these are people that are those returning from exile, um, whether he's talking just about us and the church age or the millennial kingdom or the eternal kingdom, I, I think you conclude the same thing, that these people, God's people, whether it's all of them or one of them, are unstoppable because they've what? Been changed by the king. Now that is the question I have. How can these people in Micah and us too go from horrible people, like these people, let's remind ourselves of who they are and what their kings are like. They're child-sacrificing, demon-worshipping, drunken thieves. (laughs) If I was to summarize God's analysis of Micah and of people apart from him, God's analysis of Micah's people and us apart from Christ, it's that. And they're a blessing now. To the people that were their enemies. The Assyrians who are on their doorstep, going to destroy them. What happened? How did he change them? Well, look at here. In verse 9, he says his hand is going to be raised. And a raised hand in the Bible means justice. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to bring justice. and I'm going to do it by transforming you. If we look at verses 10 through 14, that's kind of a mirror of chapter 1. And all the things that he's going to do, destroy, here he's doing the same thing. He's taking away those counterfeit comforts and changing them how? From the inside out. He's going to make them want him, not those other things. That's what's going on. He creates a different kind of people. And if we look at that, he, he kind of protects them from the inside. He changed them from the inside and from enemies without. The last verse of our passage, 15. He ultimately avenges and vindicates his people. And I want to stop for just a second and just point to the the value here of what this is for us and all people of all time. In chapter 1, verse 2, this book is written to who? God says, listen, all the earth. And here it says, any nation, any nation, not just Israel, anyone, Syrian, Babylonian, American, American, Russian, any nation that does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ will be crushed anyone. And that's what God says about his people. He's going to protect them from those nations. He's going to crush them. He's going to obliterate inside resistance to his work and outside resistance to his work. Do you see that? It's like inside transformation, and then he protects them. They're unstoppable. These sheep, me, you, us, are a people transformed and protected by the king in order that we show his supreme value above all other treasures of the world. It's a different kind of people that have a different value system. We value things of God. We value this king because he's so different. He's so unique, right? There's no one like him. Not me, not you, not the best of kings of Israel could even come close. Thinking about those kings, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, all of them, murderers and failures. This king never failed, and he never will fail. He's never going to step down. That video I was going to show you he said he, he can't be impeached. He's not going to be removed. That's who our king is, and we are his people. Think about some passages here for a second, moving toward the end. Ephesians 3, in verses 16 to 21, it says that God strengthens his people, how? In their inner person, in their inner man, in their inner woman. Why? Glory to God. Glory to Christ through the church. That's what he's doing now. He strengthens us to proclaim his glories so that we can worship him, so that we value him. Matthew 16, what I alluded to earlier, says the church is unstoppable. And in that very passage, you can go look it up later, at the end of it, it talks about the worth of the kingdom and the king. He's supremely valuable in that passage, and he's unstoppable, and his people are unstoppable. John 15 tells us that God will change us through Christ as we abide in him, right? And we'll obey. Why? Because we love him. Because we value him. Because we see his worth above everything else the world has to offer. I think many of us have experienced that. We've been in these counterfeit comforts in our life, and they, they end up like we were talking about this morning, leaving us what? Wanting more. Thirsty. And if you're there today, as I have been at different points in my life, man, just come to this King. He'll change you. He'll renew you by His Holy Spirit. doesn't matter whether it's the first time or the 50th time you need to do that in your life, this king promises to do that. He'll change you from the inside out. He'll do what I've heard some of the kids say, in addition by subtraction. He'll take those things away and put himself in their place. And it'll be less in your life, but more value. More of him, less of the world. You know, I just want to leave you today um, before I pray with one of my favorite quotes. Just remember, we're talking about a different kind of king with different strategies. He's a different person, and he creates a different kind of people. That's who Jesus is. And this is what um, the Let the Nations Be Glad says in chapter 3. It says, When the world sees millions of retired Christians pouring out the last drops of their lives with joy for the sake of the gospel and his just king, and with a view toward heaven Then the supremacy of God will shine. He does not shine as brightly in the posh, leisure-soaked luxury condos on the outer rings of our cities. We measure the worth of a hidden treasure by what we will gladly sell to buy it. If we sell all, then we measure the worth as supreme. If we will not, then what we have is treasured more. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The extent of his sacrifice and the depth of his joy display the worth he puts on the treasures of God, the King, Jesus. Loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God and his King show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in all the world than all worship and all prayer. Our king is a different kind of king, supremely valuable because he is different. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being faithful when we're not. When we fail, you use us anyway, and you just show how different you are in and through our trials, and in the book of Micah, Lord, I just pray as we think about it and as you draw us to yourself this week that we would show your worth, um, show just how different you are because you are different and you promised to change us from the inside out. Pray that that would be true in myself and everyone here. And I pray that in the name of the only true king, Jesus Christ. Amen.